0: Hello and welcome to the Hope Brooklyn Weekly Sermon Podcast. Hope Brooklyn is a community of faith in Brooklyn, New York that believes wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. Thanks for listening and enjoy this week's sermon. All right, um, welcome, <laughs> welcome. My name's Russ, I'm one of the pastors here. If it's your first time, thanks so much for being here. Uh, we are a, a, a new church, I guess still. We're coming up on our one year anniversary in April which is insane, uh, but we have a, a tagline. We say, wherever you are in your spiritual journey, there's room at the table. And those aren't words for us, we, we deeply mean them. That um, we're coming from all sorts of places on this spectrum of faith. And uh, as Liz was saying, it's amazing. Jesus is like, I stand at the door and knock. If you open the door, I will come in. It's Jesus' table and we gather around it and we're not sure what we think about him, and some of us maybe are, and we're sort of figuring out together. But wherever you are, there's room at that table for you. And so we're just so happy you're here. We're in the middle of a series that we sort of just started called A Subversive Church. Um, and before we sort of talk about that, I want to read our text for today. So if you have your, your phones or Bibles, or if not, we're just going to put the, the passage up on the screen. We're reading 1 Corinthians 2, um, verses... 6 through 1 Corinthians 3, verses 4. Cool? This is how it reads. We do, however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, we declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it. For if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, and what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. Now, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way. No one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God so that we may understand what God has freely given us. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom, but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit taught words. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the Spirit. The person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. For who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Brothers and sisters, I I could not address you as people who live by the Spirit, but as people who are still worldly, mere infants in Christ. I gave you milk, not solid food, for you were not yet ready for it. Indeed, you are still not ready. You are still worldly. For since there is jealousy and quarreling among you, are you not worldly? Are you not acting like mere humans? For when one says, I follow Paul, and another, I follow Apollos, are you not mere human beings? Will you pray with me? Lord, we we open up our hands and our hearts today. Some of us know you, some of us aren't sure about you. Some of us just came with a friend. and are like, what is Christianity? <laughs> and your response to, to each person in this room is just open up your hands. Open up your hearts. We pray, Lord, that the message, um, as we sort of dive into what Paul's talking about today, that our eyes would see you that our eyes would truly see how good you are. Forgive us when we listen to louder and lying voices more than to yours, which is the voice of truth, the voice of love. Yeah, the voice of love. Give us ears to hear you today. Give us eyes to see. It's in your name we pray, amen. So, if you're joining us for the first time, we're looking at Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, the church in Corinth. And in this letter, what's going on? Paul is attempting to shape a new community of new Jesus followers, about 30 to 50, most scholars estimate, who are living in Corinth and are sort of called out of that Corinthian environment into a new people. And so, the the wider Corinthian environment, similar to our own in New York City. This is a people who is very competitive. This is a people who is obsessed with upward mobility. This is a people who's enamored with good speakers, not so much with truth. This is a people obsessed with knowing the right people. And Paul is trying to sort of, you know, he's accepting these premises, but he's trying to shape this people. And he's trying to subvert their assumptions and their expectations in the hopes of making them into a subversive church. So two weeks ago, we talked about the thesis of the letter. And the thesis of the letter, Paul is saying, is that there's discord among you. There's schisms among you. And where there are schisms, where there are factions, we saw it in our own passage, where he goes, some say I follow Paul, some I follow Apollos. Where there are factions and schisms, that's evidence that you're not yet totally grounded in Christ. You're still acting like a human because you're still obsessed with power and obsessed with upward mobility. And we said that the, the opposite of schisms is actually not unity, it's reconciliation. So Paul says what's unique about the community of Christ is that they get to work to reconcile with one another. And then last week, Joseph talked about the wisdom of God, which is entirely grounded in the cross of Christ. And he had this this illustration, this really profound illustration. Like I'm pretty sure he stayed up late working on that. (laughs) And he's basically hinting at brilliantly what's going on in all of us, What, what Christians call, the original sin, right? But basically it's this idea, whether you're a Christian or not, it's this idea that something's not right. Something's not right in us. Something's not right in the world. There's a a separation. And just for the time being, just pretend like God isn't over there, right? There's just a separation. We in and of ourselves, the world in and of itself, is not okay. And we're trying to find everything whatever it is, to make it okay. And so we pursue careers that will make it okay, or we pursue recognition in careers that will make it okay, or we pursue marriage, maybe marriage will make it okay, or we pursue kids, once we have kids, then we'll be okay. And there's this chasm, this separation, and we think once we get over to whatever that thing is, then we'll be okay. And some of us even do it, well, not some, many of us even do it with God. We think God is over there. And we, once we pursue him, once we get across the chasm to him, to spirituality, then we'll be okay. But if we accept that framework, if we accept that framework, then God simply becomes an idol that we're all chasing. He becomes on par with everything else. And what Joseph said last week, the logic of the cross of Christ is that entire framework is blown up. What's so unique about Christianity and the gospel is that we accept that yes, something's not right, but we reject the idea that you have to get over there. No, no, no. God's already come to us. God's with us and he's with us in the form of the crucified Jesus. So I wanted to start with this this illustration because this is exactly what's going on in our own passage today. The Corinthians are obsessed with wisdom. And when when you hear that word wisdom, just think spirituality according to their culture's common sense, right? In our own day, I hear it all the time when I talk with people, you may say it, um, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. You ever heard that? Yeah, I'm spiritual, I'm not religious. That would be akin to what's going on with the Corinthians people, the Corinthians. They're seeking a spirituality, they're seeking God but they're seeking it in a way that still accepts that framework, that still makes sense to the wider culture's common sense. So they're having fights about who's more spiritual and what makes you more spiritual. They're they're creating spiritual hierarchies and they're, they're ranking up where people are in that spiritual hierarchy. Couple of examples, if you grew up in the church, maybe these sound familiar. If you didn't, maybe it's still, you're like, oh, I've seen this before. So a couple of examples. So maybe in certain churches, whoever knows the most Bible verses is the most spiritual. Does that sound familiar? Any Baptists in the room? What, what? (laughs) If you know this many verses by heart, you're more spiritual. But if you don't, if you can't pull it out, now you rank a little lower down, which is simply the world's obsession with competition and with winning, or maybe, it's morality. Maybe if you can avoid these sins, you're this spiritual, and if you if you sort of are subject to these sins, you're in the middle, and ooh, don't don't do these sins, then you're down there. Which is simply that, that spirituality totem pole. That's the world's obsession with self-reliance, and with strength, and with appearances, mainly appearances. Or or in our own day and age, there's this new thing that sort of snuck into the church, which is this this obsession with cool. Maybe you've seen it. There's this idea that like there's, it's really cool to be in church or churches can look really cool. And it's tough to pin down because cool isn't anything. Cool changes, right? Um, it's not the clothes, it's, it's not the personalities, it's not the looks, those are all just manifestations of it. But it's, you walk into a church and you clearly know as soon as you walk in, who's cool and who's not. And if you're cool, you're more spiritual, which is simply the world's obsession with power and popularity. And so all of those examples Paul would say with the utmost love in his heart, You don't look a dang thing like Jesus Christ. Not a thing. With love, you know, with all due respect, as Ricky Bobby would say. <laughs> <laughs> I said with all due respect. I can say whatever I want now. <laughs> Paul would say, In the name of Jesus, you look nothing like Jesus. You're using spiritual language, you're throwing around his name a lot but you're pursuing him. You're pursuing spirituality in a way that makes sense to the wider world. If you were pursuing him in a way that actually was grounded in the cross, well, then the weakest members among you, the most uncool members among you, that society would say are uncool, they should be at the center of your community. They should be the most honored among you. It, you're, you're, you're pursuing him, you're pursuing the spirituality in a way that makes sense to the wider world and to the wider cultural conventions. This is why, and I spoke about this before, this is why cliques are so dangerous and so nefarious. And I don't think Hope Brooklyn's in that place yet, but it will become a temptation for us. It absolutely will. Because cliques are a sign that we are choosing certainty and control over freedom and kind of recklessness. When we sort of form cliques, we know that these are status symbols. We know that these are creating hierarchies. And when that happens, we're shutting ourselves off from the power of who is new. We're shutting ourselves off from movement. And actually we're we're creating a community that makes sense to the rest of the world. And my prayer for Hope Brooklyn is that we would never become cool. <laughs> I mean, you're obviously really cool, all right? But as a community, I hope, we ne- I hope people never walk in and think, whoa, that's a cool church full of the cool kids. I hope they walk in and say, man, look how they love one another. There doesn't seem to be any sort of cliques or status among, everyone seems to be equal and equally in love with one another. That, and when that's being said, we're getting close to something right there. Uh, Thomas Merton was a, a, a sort of a Catholic contemporary mystic and he has this line and he goes, uh, if I had a message to my contemporaries, it is surely this, be anything you like, be madmen, drunks, I had to change the, the word because it's was a little different. Misfits of every shape and form, but at all costs avoid one thing, success. If you're too obsessed with success, you'll forget to live. If you have learned only how to be a success, your life has probably been wasted. Powerful, right? Our world knows how to be successes. We pursue being success. Be anything you want here, but we're not gonna pursue success. (laughs) We're gonna pursue Jesus. And, And that's what's going on in this passage. Paul is examining spirituality knowing God, but he's contrasting the Corinthians way of doing it, which is according to the world's wisdom, what makes sense to the wider Corinthian city, to Jesus' way of doing it. How did the Corinthians, wider Corinthians, Roman empire, how would they pursue spirituality versus how did Jesus know God? How did he pursue spirituality? And the way Jesus did it, is absolutely foolishness to the rest of the wider world. And in the process of sort of contrasting these two things, Paul is actually, and it probably didn't come across, but most scholars agree based on the structure of Paul's argument. He's being very ironic in our passage and even sarcastic. And so the best way to explain it, have y'all ever seen that video? It went viral a while back about an owner and he's got a, a, The camera on his dog and he's dubbing over the dog's voice. Have y'all seen that? Okay. Very funny. Basically, he's dubbing over this dog. So like you see the the dog and you hear the owner's voice and the owner's like, hey, uh, you know how much I love bacon, right? And then the dog's uh, uh, mouth moves and you hear the voice going, "Uh, yeah, I I love bacon too. (laughs) And, And the owner's like, well, I made bacon the other day. Oh, oh did you? Oh, that's, that sounds really nice. And it goes on and on, right? And he's like, and then I took that bacon. Oh, uh, what'd you do next? What happened next? And the dog's mouth is moving. He's just doing the voice. And then it goes on and on. And then the owner goes, and I took the bacon dripping with grease. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah. What happened? And I gave it. Yeah. To the cat. And then the dog goes, ah. It's really funny. And that's basically what Paul's doing right here. Seriously though, this is what is going on. Paul is sort of accepting the conventions of the Corinthians mindset, the world's wisdom, and he's baiting them. He's goading them on. And then at the very end, he just slams the hammer and shows them how he was messing with them the entire time. So the first part of our passage is what he says. He goes, we do however, speak a message of wisdom among the mature, but not the wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are coming to nothing. No, no, no. We declare God's wisdom, a mystery that has been hidden and that God destined for our glory before time began. None of the rulers of this age understood it for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. However, as it is written, what no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no human mind has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. Now, I know you're like, wait, I, I don't get it. <laughs> um, in the Greek, the, the first word in that sentence, it's structured a little different for English, but it's Sophia, wisdom. So basically Paul opens up and he goes, wisdom. Oh, oh, we speak of wisdom too. But among the mature, among the teleos, the complete, And of course, the Corinthians, they'd be eating that up. They'd be like, oh, Paul, speak to us. Speak, you're mature, mature right here. You came to the right crowd. And he's like, God's wisdom, it's a mystery, hidden, that God destined for our glory. Man, they would be eating that language up, like mysteries, hidden spiritual mysteries of God for our glory, what? And, And Paul's like, no one understood it. It's according to the prophecy. It's the, pro- of course, the prophecy. You know, we, I, was t- I told him that. I said it was the prophecy. What no eye has seen, what no ear has heard, what no heart has conceived, the things God has prepared for those who love him. And I know you're like, wait, I missed the punchline. I, it's, it's there, hold, hold, go with me. Love, that's the word. He said that all the spiritual mysteries is found in those who love him. Now, why that's the punchline is because the Corinthians in their pursuit of wisdom, they would have expected Paul to use the word know, K-N-O-W, for those who know him, but that's not what he said. The Corinthians and the wider society, they think that the wisdom of God's ways are through their knowledge of God, that you, pursue spirituality, you know God actually through intellectual knowledge. And Paul is saying, that's not the case. The way we relate with God is not through knowledge, but through love. So an example, I know many of you have have talked to me about when is Hope Brooklyn gonna start Bible studies? And I love Bible studies, and we are gonna start Bible studies at some point, but I've been cautious, and here's why because I don't think Bible studies are the best way to grow in Christ. If this is true, if the way we actually grow in our spirituality, in our knowing God, our relating with God is not our intellectual knowledge, but through love, then Bible studies are not the best way. They are a way. And I absolutely think that this is the story of God that we subject ourselves to and that forms us, but they're not the best way. I grew up in a church where we had tons of Bible studies And we had one of the most violent splits over the type of music that was played. I grew up in the church where we had tons of Bible studies. And yet then when my friends who got pregnant before they were married were systematically shunned by the church, they knew, they knew the verses. They didn't know love. They didn't know love. And Paul says, this was last week, but it's part of his argument. He goes, I resolve, to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. Paul is saying the mysteries of spirituality, the way we relate with God is not through knowledge, but through love. And the clearest form of that type of love, the clearest embodied form is when we stare at the crucified Christ. Jesus, who on the night he is unjustly betrayed, He's unjustly handed over to be killed. Is praying in the garden. And he doesn't understand. He doesn't know what God is doing. But he prays, not my will, Father, but yours be done. And then on the cross, doesn't know, doesn't intellectually understand what's going on. And he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The core of the Christian faith is the deepest existential question that emerges out of love. God is on a cross crying out from love. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Love, love says Paul, this type of love, a love that abandons knowledge for the sake of obedience, that demonstrates true spirituality. There's a a great book by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. And it's it's essentially, it's just um, correspondence letters written from a guy, uh, not a guy, (laughs) written from a character named Wormwood um, uh, or character named Screwtape to a character named Wormwood. Screwtape is sort of the senior, a senior um, demon in hell. And he's writing to a junior demon about uh, how to tempt a human away from Jesus, and so it's their correspondence. And he has this line in one of his letters that he's writing to Wormwood, and he says, "'Be not deceived, Wormwood. "'Our cause is never more in jeopardy "'than when a human, no longer desiring, "'but still intending to do our enemy's will.'" Our enemy meaning Jesus. "'Looks round upon a universe "'in which every trace of him seems to have vanished. "'Ask why he has been forsaken and still obeys. That, that is the core of love. That is the core of the cross. I mean, for anyone who's married in the room or in a really significant relationship, that's the core of the relationship. Is it not? Love is not um, loving someone when they're easy to love. What we really wanna know when we stand up and we take marriage vows, we're not asking and promising to love you when you're really easy to love, when you're successful and when you're beautiful and like when you're like happy, no, no, no. What we really wanna know is when I'm at my absolute worst, when I've exposed the utter darkness inside of me, when I'm old and wrinkly and when there's nothing good and lovable about me, will you still choose me? That's the deep question of love. And according to the crucified Christ, the answer, is yes. Yes, I will. This is what's going on. Paul is contrasting knowledge versus love as true spirituality. And there's another way, this is so evident. For many of us in this room here, in the, in the, um, the issue of religious despair, religious despair, many of us, I've had many conversations, and I myself do this too. We ask questions like, Where is God? God, where are you? I don't see you. I don't feel you. What happened? Where are you? And I I would humbly contend using this passage that perhaps we're not getting an answer because we're looking for him in an intellectual way instead of looking for him as he says he'll be found, which is through love. And again, if the cross of Christ is our like perfect manifestation of love, its love is sacrificial commitment. It's all, it's like we're we're all inside a house, right? And we're crying out, "Where are you, God?" And God's standing outside the house, saying, "Hey, I'm I'm outside the house." And it's like, "Why have you forsaken me?" No, no, no I I haven't. I'm I'm just right outside the house. Just come outside the house. I'm right here. It's like, "Do you not love me?" No, no, I I do. I'm just you're you're looking for. I'm not in the house. I'm outside the house. <laughs> Many of us, that house represents our intellectual pursuit of God. Our knowledge, our, our attempt to know, to understand. And he says, you relate with me not through knowledge, but through love of the least of these. I love this quote. It's a kind of a long quote. It comes from a poet named Christian Wyman. Um, who has a phenomenal book called My Bright Abyss. Uh, He's a poet and a professor at Yale, and he's a Christian, and this is what he says. He goes, religious despair is often a defense against boredom and the daily grind of existence. Lacking intensity in our lives, we say that we are distant from God and then seek to make that distance into an intense experience. It is among the most difficult spiritual ailments to heal because it is usually wholly illusory. There are definitely times when we we must suffer God's absence, when we are called to enter the dark night of the soul in order to pass into some new understanding of God, some deeper communion with him and with all creation. But this is very rare. And for the most part, our dark nights of the soul are in a way that is more pathetic than tragic, wishful thinking. God is not absent. Let me say that again. God is not absent. He is everywhere in the world that we are too dispirited to love. He is everywhere in the world we are too dispirited to love. To feel him, to find him, does not usually require that we renounce all worldly possessions and enter a monastery or give our lives over to some cause of social justice or create some sort of sacred art, or begin spontaneously speaking in tongues. All of these are modes of spirituality. Rather, all too often, the task to which we are called is simply to show a kindness to the irritating person in the cubicle next to us. Say, or to touch the face of a spouse from whom we ourselves have long been absent. Letting grace wake love from our intense, self-enclosed sleep. It's not a powerful line. See, he's saying humbly and with all due respect that we're so self-absorbed. I'm so self-absorbed and so lazy that I'm not willing to find him as he says he'll be found, which is in love. So I create a false sense of absence asking where is he of spiritual malaise, which is really my unwillingness to base my spirituality, to base my relationship with God off of the cross of Christ. I'm trying to base my relationship off of spiritual knowledge. When God's saying, you can find me right now, I'm everywhere, but it'll take an act of sacrificial love and you'll find me immediately. Love, which does not do what it wants, but lays itself down for the beloved. You can find God today. Go home, make cookies for your next door neighbor. Especially if you don't like your next door neighbor, definitely make cookies then. And especially if you don't have time to do it. If you feel like you're too busy, definitely make cookies then. Just because and you'll find God. With all your anger, go to your spouse, who you think you didn't do anything wrong, they did, and apologize to them, or your significant other, or your friend, or whoever. Apologize. Say, I'm sorry, and touch their face. You'll find God. To the colleague who is driving you crazy, show them undeserved kindness. They haven't done anything to earn it. They've been backstabbing you they've been messing with you, they're a terrible colleague. Show them a a tangible action of kindness. Bring them breakfast on Monday. Actually listen to them. And right there in that moment, in that sacrificially laying down of yourself for them in a real action of love, you'll find God. Death to self through a real action, through abandoning understanding what's going on, allows grace, to awaken love in us that awakens us from our self-enclosed sleep. God is not absent. He's everywhere in the world that you and I are too dispirited to love. Paul continues back in his ironic voice. He says, these are the things God has revealed to us by his spirit. The spirit searches all things, even the deep things of God. Corinthians are like, yes, he does. He searches the deep things. For who knows a person's thoughts except their own spirit within them? In the same way, no one knows the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. What we have received is not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may understand what God has freely given us. And the Corinthians are like, We you're right. We've received the Spirit who is from God. We can understand these things. This is what we speak, not in words taught us by human wisdom but in words taught by the spirit, explaining spiritual realities with spirit-taught words. Give us those spirit-taught words, Paul. The person without the spirit does not accept the things that come from the spirit of God, but considers them foolishness, cannot understand them because they are discerned only through the spirit. The person with the spirit makes judgments about all things, but such a person is not subject to merely human judgments. They would have loved that. I'm not subject to human judgments anymore. Yes, for who has known the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him, and here comes the hammer, but we have the mind of Christ. They're arguing over these spiritual realities, these spiritual mysteries, and who has more of the spirit of God to understand these spiritual mysteries? And how do we understand these spiritual mysteries and all of that? And Paul says, well, you're right, right? You know, like you do have the spirit of God. And you can understand these spiritual mysteries and these spiritual mindsets. But if you really wanna know what that mindset is, we have the mindset of Christ. Which in the question is, well, what's the mindset of Christ? Philippians 2, in your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself even further by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jesus, the mindset of Jesus, which Paul says is true spirituality. That's how you understand true spiritual mysteries. The mindset of Jesus does exactly the opposite of what any of us would have done. Jesus went to the cool church. And not only did Jesus go to the cool church, but Jesus was part of the coolest crowd at the cool church. And Not only was Jesus part of the coolest crowd at the cool church, Jesus was the leader of the cool crowd at the cool church. You feel me? He was the leader. He was the coolest person at the coolest crowd at the coolest church. He had it all. He had it all. And what did the mindset of Christ do? What did Jesus do? Having it all, he left the cool crowd. And then, he left the cool church and he went across town to the most uncool church and he joined it. And not only did Jesus join the most uncool church, but he became friends with the most uncool crowd at the most uncool church. And so everyone's like, what is this? You were the coolest person in the coolest community and you left that to join like the least cool community, the least cool place. And when we think Jesus can't act any dumber, destroy his reputation any further, abase himself, humiliate himself any more, he does. So not only does he join and become friends with the most uncool people at the uncool church, but he doesn't even become their leader. Instead he grabs water and rags and he begins to wash their feet. He begins to go around and wash their feet. And he goes, if you really want to know who God is, it's right here, this. He who was in the very nature God did not use it for his own advantage, but gave it all up and kept coming further down and further down humiliating himself more and more and more until the creator of the world is hanging humiliatingly on a cross, unjustly executed by the world he gave life to. And that, that mind, says Paul, should be in every one of us. And of course, we hear that and we think, there's no way. (laughs) And the Corinthians heard that and they thought, there's no way. We live in a society that tells us to put yourself first, to climb higher. That if you want to know more, if you want to obtain more, you gotta climb, right? And Jesus would say, sure, climb, but climb down the ladder. Go further down, take the position of the servant. Take the position of the least. You want spiritual realities? You wanna know spiritual mysteries? You don't learn them or gain them. They're not up there, they're down there. Start by abandoning the pursuit of them. Start by stopping to think you need them, says Paul. Today at brunch, go get your friends and sit with someone who you've never met, never talked to. And maybe someone you think on a regular day I probably wouldn't meet or talk to. Go sit with them. I'm gonna abandon the whole cool, uncool language because like I said, you're all cool, all right? We know that. But go sit with someone who you normally wouldn't sit with. There's the first step. The Corinthians want to follow God according to the world's wisdom. But Paul says the only way you can truly relate with God is by examining the cross of Jesus and by staring at it and by reflecting on it. And at first, when you look at the crucified Jesus, you think that's foolish, that's ridiculous. Who would do such a thing? And you're right, but then the more you stare, the more you contemplate, your heart begins to break. And you say, that is the truest moment of love that this world has ever seen. And then Paul would say, allow that to form you. Church, allow that to form you, that true action of love, that true moment of love, and then go and do likewise. Go make cookies for your neighbor, especially if you don't have time. Let those type of actions, those humbling, abasing actions, actions that put others above yourself, let those be the ground of who we are. We learn what it is to know God by looking at Jesus' cross through love, which obeys even when it doesn't make sense. We learn what it is to be spiritual by examining the mind of Christ, not manifested through possessing spiritual realities like a wise guru, but by giving up spiritual places of honor by taking the lower seat of the servant and by staring at the cross until it starts to glow in our hearts. And we say, oh man, this is the truth of the world. This is the truth. I don't necessarily know how, but it's the truth. Before we thought how foolish, now we think how amazing is grace. God is not absent, friends. He's everywhere in the world that we're too dispirited to love. I wanna invite the band back up. And will you close your eyes and pray with me? Jesus, right now we just, we silence our minds the questions we have, the fears we have, the doubts we have, and we turn our hearts towards you hanging on a cross. The most heinous ways to be executed, reserved for the worst of the worst, the worst society has, and you're up there. Unjustly, you're up there. You didn't do anything wrong. You lived a life that set free and that gave people hope and joy and acceptance and love, and you were put up there because you're a threat. And as we stare at you, Lord, would our hearts be woken to what love is? That right there is the true center of God. Who being in the very nature of God, you did not consider that glory and that splendor and that reputation something to be held on to but you gave it up and you kept moving further and further down the totem pole to the absolute rock bottom place for love. If you're in this room today and you wouldn't call yourself a follower of Jesus, but something has stirred in your soul, Something is moving as you stare upon this image of a crucified man. I just want to invite you to push into that. Just in your heart, just say, Lord Jesus, or just say, Jesus, reveal yourself to me. Show me your love. If you're here and as you're exploring that image of what true spirituality is at the cross and you feel in your heart the need to be baptized, the need to take that next step, I wanna encourage you to do so. Just say yes, I'll follow. Even though I don't understand, I'll follow. And if you're here, and you like me find yourself saying more often than not, where are you, God? My prayer for you is that you would come outside the house, that you would allow grace to waken love to awaken you out of yourself in close sleep. Simple, tangible actions, making cookies, touching the face of your spouse, going and asking for forgiveness, even if you don't think you did anything wrong. Humble yourself, humble yourself, humble yourself for the sake of another and you'll find God. Lord, we confess that like like the Corinthians did, we're looking for you in the same way. We're looking for you in a way that makes sense to the world. We want spiritual realities that give us spiritual places of honor. We want to know you intellectually and only intellectually. And, And so our prayer is as a community, that the cross of Jesus would pierce through our hearts and minds. That we would stare at it so much that it would become groundswell for us. That the cross, the cross, the cross would be our only hope and our only boast. And that we would know that true relationship with you comes from that place. And when we move toward that place, Only you can do it, Holy Spirit. And so we pray that your spirit is awakened in us right now. Your spirit is awakened all around this room. Waken us from our sleep. Waken us. Give us eyes like Jesus to love the world, to love, to bleed for the world. Waken us. And it's in your name we pray, Lord. Amen. Thanks again for tuning in to this week's sermon. To find out more about the mission and ministry of Hope Brooklyn, details about Sunday worship and brunch, to subscribe to our other podcasts and lots more, visit us online at www.hopebrooklyn.org.